Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of OTTB On Tap. I'm Neve, And I'm Emily. This week, we're sitting down with Bonnie McRae of After the Races, a 501c3 off-the-track thoroughbred rehabilitation and rehoming program and facility based in Elkton, Maryland. Bonnie is a lifelong horsewoman who has a pretty incredible background with horses, including finishing fifth in the Mongol Derby in 2014 and working with legendary Monty Roberts. You can find After the Races online at www.aftertheraces.org and also on Facebook. Thank you so much for joining us, Bonnie. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks. You already did a pretty good job. Yeah. So I am the founder and director of After the Races. We have been in operation now for at least 12 years. And before that, you know, I've always been a lifelong horsewoman and rider uh, since childhood. Right after I graduated college, actually, I went to NC State for a degree in animal science with a focus on equine. And directly out of college, I was very fortunate to participate in a program called the Kentucky Equine Management Internship. And what this did was pair recent graduates interested in being part of the racing industry with top class farms in Kentucky. So I was actually lucky enough to work with Judmont Farms, which for anybody in the know with racing, Judmont is hands down one of the best, if not the best breeding operations in the world, and then also racing outfits. So I learned so much there. And when I was at Judmont, I got to work with starting the horses for the racetrack. So we got to see start to finish how these racehorses were produced, which wow. was pretty cool. And then after Kimi, we call it Kimi, <laughs> I got a job working for Bruce Miller, steeplechase trainer up here in Unionville, Pennsylvania, a little bit further north of me now. And that was an incredibly educational experience for me. We, I had already done the university. I had done the internship. I had ridden all these really amazing horses. Like I've won ridden horses that have now gone on to be undefeated grade one winners. It's just incredible. But working with Bruce, I managed his barn completely. I exercised the horses daily. I went to the races with the horses. So it was just the whole package. I got to do every little bit. When a horse got hurt, I got to take care of it. It was all kind of a one-stop shop because it was a small staff. And I just learned so much there. And I actually only left because I got very ill, unfortunately. I got quite sick and had to walk away for a bit. Oh, no. And I'm fine. It wasn't anything mm-hmm. too crazy. But while I did that, it gave me some time to kind of think about where I wanted to go next. And as I got back on my feet, I actually started after the races. And while it was in its infancy, I also just trained horses and started youngsters and did all kinds of freelance riding and training to kind of pay the bills while after the races kind of got off on its way. So that's kind of my history with horses. That's really cool. I didn't know all that about your background and it makes sense Mm -hmm. that you kind of got the thoroughbred bug early on and it's just sort of (laughs) stuck with you for such a long time. Well, let's talk a little bit more in depth about after the races as an organization. If you could just tell us sort of what the mission statement of the organization is and just some background on how the program has expanded since you started it? Sure. After the races, mission statement is to rehabilitate and rehome thoroughbred racehorses into suitable long-term homes while promoting the versatility and usefulness of the breed beyond racing. So that's us in a nutshell. It's nice and clear and concise. You started it in 2010, 2011. So tell me a little bit about 
how many horses you started with and how that's grown in the last 10 or 12 years? Sure. We started taking horses in, I say we as an organization, in October of 2010. We hadn't actually incorporated yet. It was kind of a, let's just see how this feels. And we very quickly incorporated at the beginning of 2011, which is our official kind of start date. And since then, gosh, I don't know how many years it's gone by, 12 years, 13 years? Mm-hmm. It, the time has flown. But when we first started, we went from having four horses at a time to maybe like eight horses at a time. And the very first year after the races was operating, we had about 35 horses come through the program, which is pretty small, but not nothing. And then we actually moved directly from our first farm relatively soon after we started, actually, to a second farm in Pennsylvania where we were able to expand because we had a lot more demand than we had space for at our first farm. And we were at that second farm for six years at least. But in the time we were there and for six years, we actually moved a little over 300 horses. And it went from 35 a year. Next year, we had like 49 and then 60. And then it just started almost like growing faster than I could keep up with a little bit. And definitely faster than our facility could keep up with. So we were very fortunate that we had a connection, a friend of After the Races who had bought this property that we're now on. And he asked if he built a horse facility, would we be interested in renting it? And we really needed to expand. And that was our opportunity. So we kind of took that risk and went in on it with him. And we've been here now six years and have rehomed another 560 some horses in six years. So we had a six year period where we rehomed 300 horses. And then the next six years, we almost doubled that. So this is partly in part due to, yes, we have a few more stalls, but it's also a sign of how after the races grew and the reach that we have from the very beginning, we really believed, or I really believed in being a hundred percent transparent with any and all people interested in the horses and after the races, transparent about our business, transparent about everything. And at the beginning, it kind of hurt us a little bit because we'd have this horse that was perfectly sound and beautiful and had no limitations. But I would tell someone, Hey, he retired because he had an incomplete slab fracture and his knee, but it's been rehabilitated fully and now he's good. And a lot of people I think were just like, if she's telling me about that knee, what is she not telling me? Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, You're whereas, like, I'm just going to do the right thing. <laughs> like 12 years ago, however long ago it was, I, I just don't think people were used to that. And in yeah. the horse selling and buying industry. If you and now it's that. more of an expectation. Yeah. And I, I feel like really we, in the thoroughbred world, sort of pioneered that a little bit. I hate to say it, you know, not that anybody was doing anything wrong, but I just, was so transparent. And the amount of response we had to that over the years has been tremendous. Like we have people that come to us from California, from Canada, from British Columbia, from Florida, the Bahamas to adopt horses from our program. And we ask them, why don't you find a horse closer to home? It's going to cost you five grand to ship it to California or whatever. And most of them say, because of your reputation, you guys are honest, you're transparent. We love how you represent your horses. They all look like they're in good shape. They're happy. They're healthy. They're, you know, living a good life. And they feel very trusting in our program. Yeah. And it wasn't always that way. But I do think a lot more organizations are going that route now. And yeah. I don't mean to say that, again, that they did anything wrong. But, you know, a lot of people would maybe have this horse for adoption, say all the nice things about it. And then when the person inquired, be like... All those things are true, but they also (laughs) have this injury they recovered from. And it's not that they weren't being honest, but it was like a little bit of a delay 
and yeah. sharing that information. And I think that's where we stood out. Everything is on our website right there for you to read it. I think it helps save everybody's time, honestly. Sure. So. sure. And I feel like that reputation of return clients and mm-hmm. consistent customers doesn't happen overnight. And it, it does take a lot of sort of trial and error to figure out what works and what makes your organization successful. And I imagine that comes with you having help and people around you in the barn. And I know you guys have a board of directors, right? We do, of course. Yeah. So, so explain to me who else helps support the organization of, on a day-to-day basis and then maybe a little bit more broadly. Okay. Well, just for a small comparison, when we first started, nobody off the races got paid. It was all 100% volunteer. I mean, there was no money to pay anybody with. Right. So, <laughs> you know, for like three years, we were very, we're still very dependent, but we were incredibly dependent on volunteers in the early days. And I have some volunteers that were there with me from day one that I still stay in touch with are still part of the, what we call ATR family. And, you know, I just cannot overstate the value of volunteers. However, like day-to-day operations, we have a small staff. We have myself, we have Stacy, who's our manager, and we have Reyes, he goes by Ray, who kind of takes care of the barn. And the three of us together are there every day. And yeah. I, right now I tell people I have my dream team. Ray has been working for, for after the races for, I think five years now. And, yeah. you know, he, I, he's overqualified for the work that he does here. <laughs> I think if something happened to me or something had to stay, happened to Stacy, he could run the barn. He's so valuable to us. Every member of our team is valuable to us. And Stacy, who's been working with us for about two years now is an incredible horsewoman. She's a phenomenal rider. And on top of all that, both her and Ray the most important thing to me is that they are both some of the most genuine, kind people that that I know. For me, the kindness and the patience and the gentleness that you can bring into an environment like this is worth more to me than your experience training a horse or for sure, you know, anything else. So to be able to say my I can honestly say my entire staff and my volunteers, like some of the kindest people you'll ever meet. And, you know, they give the horses the benefit of the doubt. They, they're just, it's wonderful. It's, it's magic sometimes. And I can honestly say that everybody who works here too loves working here, which sounds a little braggy maybe, but we do. And really special. It's, it's, it's a passion for everybody that's here. And then in addition to our staff, of course, we have our board of directors. We have Mark Donaldson. He's a fantastic vet out of Unionville Equine. We have Katie McIntyre, who's a wizard with everything financial. Yeah. <laughs> and we have Bethany pastoral who's our photographer bethany p photography and in addition to her photography skills which are top notch she is also a businesswoman and entrepreneur in her own right so she brings a lot of good information and ideas to the table and we also have a former employee of after the races jade who joined our board last she has a passion for what we do and she wanted to step in and really take some stuff off our plates so she helps with like the promotional events and merchandising and things like that and she's been a big help. So that's our board, which is pretty small. How it's kind of how I like it right now. We <laughs> have them. And then of course we have actually have a volunteer staff. We have two people that basically work for ATR as volunteers. One is Meredith from Finish Line Farms, just right down the road from us. She actually over a year ago now took over all of the contact forms on our website. So if wow. anybody ever fills out a form to ask for information, or if they fill out a form to say, I need to return a horse or any of those things. They go to Meredith now, which is a huge, like huge relief to me with, with all my admin duties. So she's been doing that for a year or more. 
And in addition to her, we have Karen, who's another volunteer. She's from Delaware, and she does all of our volunteer coordinating. So if you go to our website and you want to volunteer and you fill out our little form, it's going to go to Karen, and she's going to tell you all about our program and how you can help and how to sign up. And she just does a beautiful job. And that also took a lot off of me because it's a lot. It's a lot to coordinate. Yeah. And I'm sure when you've started it from the ground up, having to delegate and give those responsibilities to other people comes with very special types of relationships. Like it's hard to give up that kind of stuff because it's things that you like really care about and really want to make sure are done the way that you want them done. It's really impressive that you have such a unified, strong team behind ATR. Well, to what you're saying, I mean, it was very difficult for me at first to delegate and to let go of some of the things that I was used to doing. And I could see that my time could be spent better doing other things, but it was just so hard to let go of that control. So I've gotten a lot better at it, but also (laughs) the people on my team that do these things for us, they do it because I trust them. I I trust they have the best interest of the organization in mind and they're doing it from my place of passion. And yeah, so it makes it a little easier to to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely makes it easier when you find the right people and they're passionate about their job and you can trust that they're going to follow through with everything that they need to do. It's irreplaceable, really. It is. Um, And both the people that are on our staff, aside from me, that's also one of the biggest characteristics. I mean, they're reliable. I never, ever have to worry about them. I know they're going to do a great job every day, every time. And that takes a huge burden off of me. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. Let's talk a little bit about your relationship or after the races relationship with different tracks and trainers, like how you acquire your horses and different methods of how you do that and your relationships there. Yeah. So after the races is partners with a lot of We call them track-based retirement programs. So in Maryland, you have a group called Beyond the Wire, and they Mm -hmm. are responsible for helping horses transition off the racetrack at all the different tracks in Maryland. And Beyond the Wire pretty much works with accredited organizations like us. And when a horse races in Maryland, as well as when a horse is claimed in Maryland, there is an amount of money that has to be donated basically back into this program. And when a trainer is done with a horse or is time for the horse to go on to a new career, they're then brought into my program directly from the racetrack. And that fund basically helps the horses when they come into my program. They give us a donation with every horse and that donation doesn't cover all the bills, but it covers enough that we can make up the rest. And it's really cool because the racing owners, trainers, connections, like they are directly contributing to the aftercare of their horses. And the program in Maryland is not necessarily unique. There's Aftercare Charlestown, who we've worked with for a long time as well, who helps the horses there at Charlestown Racecourse in Charlestown, West Virginia. And we also have Penn Nationals program, New Start for Horses. I think we've been working with them longer than anybody at this point. So we get the majority of our horses through these kind of programs. And we have trainers and owners who have seen horses go through our program that then say, ooh, I really liked how they handled my horse, or I really like that they kept me in touch with that adopter. So we'll start having some trainers and owners kind of almost go around <laughs> that, yeah, that yeah, system. Yeah. You know, to make, yeah, just to make sure that they get to our farm because they just really like what we do. And beyond just those track-based programs, we will take in thoroughbreds from anywhere, really, 
as long as they've raced or had race training. And we have owners who have shipped us horses from Kentucky, New York, Florida, Louisiana, just so that they can transition here at our farm and find a new home. And a lot of that has just come from years of doing this now and having a bit of a reputation out there that, you know, I always basically have a wait list for horses to enter our program, which is good and bad, but the demand is definitely there. So that's, that's one thing if we can do in the future, like I, I really think we're about ready to start expanding again. Yeah. Um, but that's a little story for later, but the, the owners who come to us directly, we have similar requirements like from the track because, you know, it is a nonprofit, but we have to pay the bills. So yeah. Generally, if a horse is coming from a racing connection, we do require a donation. The donation varies for a lot of different with a lot of different factors from how sound they are, how long of a rehab they might need if they need rehab. Because mm-hmm. we will absolutely take horses that just fractured a cannon bone or mm-hmm. just bowed mm-hmm. a nasty tendon that doesn't exclude them from our program. In fact, we kind of specialize in that. So a lot of them just come to us directly these days as well. And we also take in horses from private owners who have acquired a thoroughbred, you know, show homes, pleasure homes. And for whatever reason, they can't keep that thoroughbred anymore. A lot of those people will reach out to us and I try to help as many of them as I can. So even if the horse has been off the track for 10 years, they're still eligible if the owner wants to reach out to us. So I feel like there's a lot of horses that end up in bad situations because of exactly that, yeah. you know, the owner has them and, and maybe they run into financial trouble or maybe the horse was unsuitable for them or what, whatever reason. So it's really great to hear that there's an outlet for those types of horses. So they don't end up in a bad situation. Yeah. We try to help as many as we can. If not the ones that we can't necessarily help directly, we try to connect them with people who can help them. Sure. So, you know, we try never to just say no. We try to help them find a solution. So very cool. And I think to the cycle of horses being bred and raised and then running out of the track, going through these barns and then finding their way to you, I feel like you've really completed that life cycle in a way that a lot of organizations have been trying to do for a long time. And it's really nice to see that there are programs all over that are working with the trainers at the track to give them those resources so that they don't feel lost at the end as well. You know, back when we were selling horses, there was just trainers at the end of their line kind of being like, well, now I don't know what to do with this horse, you know? And it's just really encouraging to see that that is becoming more connected. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me to look back because, you know, I've been doing this for a little over a decade now and the changes the industry has made in the last 10 years, 12 years are honestly kind of incredible. I mean, I know there's always more we can do, but early days when I used to get horses right off the racetrack, we had so many that would crash, you know, like crash hard Mm -hmm. from, Whatever medications they were on, I'm not judging anybody here, but they would just, they crash and you're going to have to see them through that. I almost never see that now. And it's amazing. It's such a huge transformation from 10 years ago. And I think a lot of it are these track-based programs, like you said, that they give these trainers an out and the trainers, some of them anyway, like take pride in presenting us with a horse that's been well cared for. Yeah. And it shows. So it's It's really interesting that you bring that up because I think we discussed that in a previous episode, maybe two episodes ago, is that we haven't seen as much of that crash that's happening with horses. It's pretty interesting to think about the difference between now versus 10 years ago. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if anybody was doing math earlier, but we've had 900 horses come through our program now. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen enough that we have a pretty big sample size. Yeah. (laughs) And and I can say without a doubt, yeah, we see way less. I, I can't even actually remember the last one I saw. Maybe it was a year and a half ago or so. 
And that's a win for everybody because it just Mm -hmm. allows you to get the horse going a little bit sooner and the horse is happier and mentally and physically just ready to think about what it wants to do next in life, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the adoption process at after the races. Sure. Where Um, do people start? A lot of people start on Facebook, to be honest, or Mm -hmm. Instagram or somewhere else where they see one of our videos and like, oh, who's that? We we do this thing that a lot of people started calling them unboxing videos. Oh, I love those videos. (laughs) Exactly. Everybody loves these videos. And it was just like an idea we had eight years ago or so. I was like, let's just record this horse coming in. And yeah. That's usually when they look the most outstanding when they first get to a new place and they get off the trailer and they just have that look about them, you know. It's always like it's like Christmas morning, you know, you're like, Oh, look at this one. Yeah, so there's so many people that like their first exposure to after the races was seeing one of these unboxing That's videos cool. because they get a lot of response on social media these days. So Very they cool. kinda hear about our program and then a lot of times somebody directs them to our website, whether it's us or another fan. So basically they go to their website. There's an application online. It's not horse specific, which is very important to us. It is just about you and your background and what type of horse you're looking for, what your needs are, what your limitations are. A lot of information just to help us match you with an appropriate horse. So they would do that and then that will just stay on file in perpetuity in case they don't find the right horse. Yeah. Once they're approved... Until they adopt a horse, we'll, we'll usually hold those applications for about six months. Okay. After after six months, we're going to ask you, like, okay, are you still in the same barn? Just to make sure there haven't yeah. been any major changes. But we we like to hold on to them for a while. So at any given time, we might have 100, 150 people who are approved to adopt that just haven't picked their horse yet. Yeah. And they're just, like, waiting for that right one to come out of one of those unboxing videos. And the process, I've been told by people who have completed it, is... I think a lot easier than some organizations, a little bit more straightforward. We don't ask, there's certain questions we don't ask. There's certain questions we do ask. A lot of our questions are open-ended. It's not, do you have barbed wire on your farm? It's what type of fencing (laughs) do you have on your farm? You know, different things like that. And we try to leave it open-ended so that we could basically let you tell us what you want us to know about you. And then we ask for a few references. Obviously, if you've had horses before, we want to talk to your vet. If you haven't had horses before, We're not going to penalize you for that, but we're still going to want to talk to someone that knows you in a horse capacity, whether that's your trainer, your riding buddy, you know, anything like that. Someone you've leased the horse from. And we do check references, which I think surprises a lot of people. We have a lot of people that don't (laughs) expect it. A lot of references we call that hang up on us because they think we're like a spam call at first when we start our little spiel. So that's kind of entertaining sometimes, but we do check references because as good as somebody can sound on their application, we just like to do our due diligence and confirm it. And it's amazing how many people will list references that don't give them a good reference. Like really, and I think think that's the, and it doesn't like, like super often, don't get me wrong. It's a minority, but it's, it's still amazing. And I think it goes to show a lot of people don't think we're actually going to call. Right. and and so that's our, a good safeguard for you guys exactly I, i'm a big fan of it <laughs> i can't say enough good things about checking references but really our process is pretty straightforward usually if you fill out an application you hear back from me within like 48 hours as far as like hey we got it we're working on it any follow-up questions and then we try to get everybody done within like seven to ten business days so it's not too long of a wait and once you're approved you're approved so if you see that horse come off a trailer and that's the one there's no hurdle to wait for you between you and that horse. You know, if you wait till you see that horse that you're really interested in to fill out your application, you might have 10 days, two weeks 
uh, of waiting time and just hope that horse doesn't get adopted before you get approved. So I like to tell people, apply early, apply before you even see a horse that you want, because we have a big following and horses sometimes go quickly. And yeah. I hate giving that disappointing news to somebody who has had that heart invested in a horse that they just saw for four seconds on the internet, but it is what it is. But after you've adopted a horse from us, we do try to take care to match a horse appropriately with a rider. Somebody might actually, a lot of times people come to my barn and they say, Oh, I want this one. And I, we talk about their goals. We talk about their history. And it's like, mm, I don't think th- that horse is going to be successful with you. I think this horse over here might be better suited to your needs. And if you read through our reviews, you'll see so many people that say that they came to our organization to look at one, they went home with a different one. Mm-hmm. And that's because we really want to set these horses up for success. We do allow horses to be returned to our program. And that's an important part, I think, of any aftercare organization. However, we have a very good retention rate. So we get very few returns every year. And the horses that we get returned aren't usually ones that they've had for a month. These are horses that they've had for years that so they had some life change occur and they couldn't keep the horse anymore so that's when the horse we very rarely have a horse come back because it didn't get along with its adopter or something like that yeah so yeah that's amazing i think it's really an art form in a way to be able to a evaluate the rider Mm -hmm. and the horse and know who will be a good match but then also to be able to sway somebody that really wants that 17 hand dapple gray but you're telling Mm -hmm. them that, you know, the 16 hand plain bay is actually what they really need. And then they listen. That's mm-hmm. well, some people don't listen. Do. Some people just get mad, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, but I would say most people can tell that we are coming from a very honest place and they can yeah. see that we're trying to even set them up for success, not just the horse. We want yeah. them to have a good time with their horse. And that match making ability is something that's been cultivated over many years of doing this and something that we take take pride in so yeah and you don't want your horses getting hurt or worried and you don't want your your adopters getting themselves into bad situations either so i think it's your due diligence to really make sure that you check off all those boxes when you're completing that process yeah and there's it's funny when when covid happened and and everything got shut down going back i don't know how many years anymore who knows um (laughs) After the Races is, is part of the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. It's a, a group that accredits organizations like ours. basically says these people maintain a very high standard of care and do all these things. And we have partner calls every month. Everybody gets together. We talk. And when COVID first happened, we were one of the only organizations in the whole country that's accredited that would do sight unseen adoptions. Oh, wow. And then we were also one of the very few that would even do like out-of-state adoptions. So when COVID happened, we had a stellar year because we were already set up, already used to doing that. And the other organizations were kind of figuring it out as they went very suddenly. So that is something that some people find unique about our program is you can be in British Columbia and adopt a horse and not see it till it gets to you. And I will say over and over again, that is not for everybody. (laughs) We don't suggest that for everybody. Right. There are capable, experienced horse yeah. men and women out there that can do that. And if that's in your comfort zone, you can do that with after the races. The matchmaking process is still important. All the vetting stuff is still important, maybe more important. But that's an option here that not everybody necessarily offers for people looking to adopt. So it sounds like you're open, obviously, to potential adopters adopting without actually coming to the farm and seeing the horses in person. 
what would you say your ratio is of adoptions that are sight unseen? It's actually pretty high. If it's not 50-50, it's 40-60. We have, I would say, a very large number of our horses go sight unseen to people across the country. We actually just had two even go down to the Bahamas. So lucky them. They got away before all this crappy (laughs) weather started. (laughs) That's really cool. So it's more than people think. And like I said before, uh, one of the biggest reasons people give us for coming to us from so far away is our reputation, transparency, honesty. One of the horses I went to the Bahamas, she was a very nice horse, but she had some behavioral issues and some stuff that I was kind of questioning, is she even going to be adoptable? And I told the adopter all of this. I told her everything that happened and what we've seen and said, if you're going to be going through the process of shipping a horse all the way to the Bahamas, maybe pick a different horse. (laughs) Just because once it gets down there, it's down there. But she, you know, she really loved this one horse. She adopted two. They were already pasture mates. And she just said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to work with these issues. And if she doesn't end up being a riding horse for me, she can be a companion. She runs an educational program down there in the Bahamas where some people just need to learn how to groom and handle a horse. And she's like, she'll have a job. But it's incredible to me that somebody could hear that, you know, we were that transparent about that horse. And you would think that's it for that horse. But yet they still found somebody willing to take take them on because they knew exactly what they were getting. And and to my knowledge, they've been very happy so far. So that's That's really great. Yeah. And do you find any difference in like retention rate for the sight unseen horses like you've any more difficulty doing the match without actually having that in-person meeting no that's kind of the surprising thing I, i think that is a testament to our application process the amount of references that we check the amount of people we talk to if we have any hesitation we ask for more information we ask for pictures we ask for video we look them up on social media we're we're not against doing some light stalking to make sure these people are who they say they are. And honestly, I think the retention rate is probably about the same for those who saw the horse in person and those who didn't. We get so few returns quickly after an adoption, which yeah. quickly would mean something didn't match well. You know, so no, I don't think there's really a difference, which is honestly kind of incredible. But yeah, it really is a testament to your application process. That's really cool. And then how about pre-purchase exams? Do you allow them? Do people do them? What's the process there? So we absolutely allow them. We actually encourage them in a lot of cases. Some cases, such as an adult buying a horse for their teenage daughter. It doesn't (laughs) sound obvious, but I don't want this horse to go home and something to come up. And this kid is heartbroken and they're crying and their mom's calling me like, I didn't (laughs) know about this. You know, so it's kind of funny. Like when there's a child involved, usually a teenager, not like a small child, we almost, almost require a pre-purchase. Let's have somebody come look at this horse so you guys know exactly what you're getting <laughs> and it's going to definitely meet your daughter's needs. I like having that peace of mind. Yeah. <laughs> and on top of that, if you're looking for a really high level comp- competitive horse, I mean, most of you will do a pre-purchase exam. Yeah. And that said, it's kind of funny. Like most people don't do pre-purchase exams with us. I think hmm. it's only maybe even 20% of adoptions have a pre-purchase and, and again, it's all your comfort zone. And I think something I haven't mentioned yet actually is our veterinarian thoroughly evaluates every single horse that comes into our program. So where some people might get these horses off the track, have no history and just do the best they can where our veterinarian comes and she does a head to tail, head to foot evaluation. She checks her eyes, she listens to her heart. 
She checks her spine from top to bottom. She palpates and all the tendons, all the ligaments, the, the joints. She does like a range of motion test. And then we jog them on concrete. And if we see anything, we dive into diagnostics. We don't waste time. Uh, we found out a lot time, long time ago that paying for those diagnostics on day one saved us a lot more money than waiting 30 to 60 days and seeing what happened. Sure. So these people who are coming to us from out of state or anywhere, they're also getting all of that information. Yeah. So for some people, that's enough for them. For some yeah. people, they're good with that. And anybody else who wants to do a pre-purchase, they're still welcome to. And I generally will not let a horse go to a pre-purchase that I don't think it'll pass. So for example, we had a horse recently who her name was in the news. Owner doesn't care. I'm sure she loves her. She had a knee injury and, you know, she just wasn't always a hundred percent sound and she was definitely rideable, but it's one of those serviceably sound type horses mm -hmm. for a very low key job. And they really wanted to do a pre-purchase exam. And I was like, she will fail. <laughs> She's, <laughs> yeah. you know. I'm like, like spend your money on something else for her. <laughs> and I verified with them. I said, okay, let's just be clear. Your application said you're looking for a horse to be a companion to your mare and a family pet that you might occasionally hop on to ride around the farm. And they're like, yeah, that's right. That's right. So let's do the pre-purchase. I was <laughs> like, wow. Okay. And to the vet's credit who did the pre-purchase, she re-x-rayed the knee. It wasn't pretty. She flexed better than I thought she would, but she was a little off when she flexed and to that vet's credit, she knew what those people's goal was, and the horse did pass. But it was passed for a very specific purpose. Yeah. But if I have somebody who, say, wants to take that same horse and do eventing and they want to do a pre-purchase, I'll say, no, don't waste your money. It's not going to be the yeah. right horse for you. Yeah. Um, and it wastes my time. I don't want to waste my time. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so once somebody has adopted a horse and moves on from your farm, what are some sort of follow-up resources that ATR has in place in terms of keeping up with adopted horses? Is there a Facebook group for horses that have been adopted through ATR that's specific or anything like that? We do actually have a Facebook group. We have a, a private group just for adopters and people, not even just adopters, if you buy a horse down the line that happened to have been an after the races graduate, we also will invite you to that Facebook group. Cool. Facebook group is all about our ATR family looking out for each other and the adopters that come into this group. I think there's like 500 or so in there right now. They come to each other when they have issues, they celebrate their victories. They, you know, say, Hey, I'm struggling with this. Does anybody else struggle with it? And it's, it's a really great community of people who aren't going to judge you. It's a very friendly environment, very, no drama environment. Mm -hmm. And we've had some pretty serious discussions in there about a variety of cases, including euthanasia and various things. And yeah. it's just a safe space for them to be able to celebrate the good days and talk about the bad days and everything in between. And it's an idea that we came up with many years ago now that I thought what it would do is take a little bit off of me. Like instead of everybody coming to me with every question they have after they get a horse home, they might post in this group and talk about it there. And it's done that, but also so much more. People yeah. have developed some real friendships and, and things through this group. And it gives me an easy way to keep track of a lot of my horses. So that's really um, cool. I didn't ask this question before, but if somebody adopts a horse through ATR, are they allowed to sell the horse at some point? Yeah. So our horses are all pretty young coming right off the racetrack. I think our average age is like four years old. And personally, I think it's a little unrealistic to think that 
that four-year-old horse is going to stay in the same home for the next 20 plus years. Yeah. Many will, to be fair, but there's going to be times where for whatever reason, you need to part with your horse. And if it happens, what they need to do with me is basically first tell me the horses for sale. That's helpful knowledge. And and I offer them some resources as well. Like, do you need me to help you, you know, post this horse on our social media? Do you want me to put it on the website? Like we're very much like, let's be engaged and help you rehome this horse. And a lot of people take us up on that. We've had people who just put a lot of work into their horses. I mean, a lot of work. And they are at a clinic in Wellington and somebody offers them 50 grand for this horse. (laughs) It has happened. And I immediately get a text or an email because basically we just need to know, hey, so-and-so wants to buy my horse. They want to spend this much money on it. Here's all of their contact information, name, address, phone number, email. Are you good? Because obviously I don't have $50,000 to buy that horse back. It's nice to have the option, but the biggest part is being connected with that next owner. Sure. So we do allow resale. We try not to work with people who are going to flip horses. That's not what we want. If someone wants to put two years, three years into producing a very nice horse and then sell it to a very nice home, we're okay with that. There's a phrase that the ASPCA Right Horse Program likes to say a lot when we do our conferences and our conference calls, which is a trained horse is a safe horse Mm. and not safe like safe for the rider safe in that they have a safe spot and like they're going to be taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. That a horse that's well-trained is going to have a home. You know, I always say that about horses. If you can create value in a horse, whether that's a good companion or a trail horse or whatever, they tend to stay safe. Exactly. So we're happy to work with people like that who are going to kind of take that approach. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not for everybody and not all of our horses come with papers. So if you're expecting papers, people really need to just let that go. (laughs) You know, we're not out here trying to adopt these horses to breed more thoroughbreds. So you don't need (laughs) their papers. (laughs) I know it's a nice keepsake for some, but not all of the horses come with them. We get papers that get lost at the track or this trainer had 200 horses and they are actually over in Kentucky right now. And who knows where the papers ended up. It's actually getting easier now that they're digital, but previously when they were paper it was almost hopeless with a lot of cases so it's totally impossible to get new papers issued as well i mean not totally impossible but yeah but it can be a rabbit hole to go down and it's expensive so um Mm -hmm. before we get into the the meat and potatoes part of the, what this episode is about. Let's have a, a little uh, get to know Bonnie better section here. Oh, <laughs> So right. I kind of teased in your intro that you had done the Mongol Derby. Can you tell us about that? Because I don't think Emily's heard the story. The first time I met you, Bonnie, in person, you, I, I, you, you weren't that far out from it at the time. And you mm-hmm. told me all about it. And I was completely obsessed with you <laughs> from that point on. <laughs> Yeah. So the Mongol Derby is officially the longest horse race in the world. And until recently, and honestly, still a lot of people consider it the toughest horse race in the world. So in, I think 2014 is the year I did it. And I think the year I did it was about the fifth running of the race. And basically what the race organizers are doing is recreating a postal system that had been used from the time of Genghis Khan all the way up to 1950 the same postal system had been used for that long. So they thought, well, this is pretty cool. What if we made a race of it? So we go to (laughs) Mongolia. They they attract 30 to 40 crazy people who, for some reason, want to go to Mongolia and jump on horses that are barely trained and 
ride across some pretty intense terrain. And that's what we do. We, we ride each horse for about 40 kilometers. So thousand kilometers, you have about 28 horses. And these horses are semi-feral. These are not <laughs> anything that you're used to, anything any of us are used to. Well, when you, know, you say home. horse, I feel like you're using that term real loosely. Aren't they like a little short and squat kind of Yeah, try, tell, try telling somebody in Iceland that their horses are ponies. You know, they're, they're horses. Some of them are pony-sized. Yeah. Some of them are horse-sized. <laughs> but I have ridden grade one winning stakes horses at full tilt. And I swear some of these horses could keep up with them. They are, they are amazing. They're machines. They're rockets. These horses are not kept like ours are because in Mongolia, they're nomadic. They don't have a farm with fencing and ways to keep these horses contained. They don't farm, so they don't have ways to feed them themselves. So their horses are basically allowed to be feral. And they run in their herds. And when they need a horse, they either jump on another horse and go get one or... <laughs> jump on a dirt bike and go get one or herd them all up into like a really rustic corral and then lasso them. <laughs> they don't just come to you. <laughs> and this is partly by design because they have predators there. Horses are killed by wolves in Mongolia. And if you domesticate the horse too much, they lose that sense of almost fear is not the word I'm going for, but like they, they get like a false sense of security. Yeah, At least yeah. It's false in Mongolia. It's not false here. They're not going to get eaten by wolf here. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, so that's part of it too. So, but the amazing thing is they might have to lasso your horse to catch it. Oh and gosh. they might have to have a couple people kind of hold it down to get the saddle on it. And then, and you, then, jump and then you hop and on. Yeah. And quite a few would buck or do a little this or that. But it's, these horses were just so incredible. I mean, they weren't easy. They were tough. But Every now and again, you'd be blessed and you would get one of the Mongolian racehorses that somebody, because they have races there. That's one of their national sports is horse racing. And when you race in Mongolia, you're racing 40 plus kilometers. These are not short races. Oh, wow. And if you think about it, our horses at most, like the steeplechase horses do like two and a half, maybe miles, which is huge compared to the average flat horse who does like seven eighths or something. Yeah. yeah. These Mongolian horses gallop nonstop for 25 okay. miles. I've been to the races and the races, by the way, like three hours of waiting for the horse to show up. So it's wild. So when you get blessed with one of these race horses, oh man, it's one of the best rides I've ever had in my life. They just go. And the race horses, the ones that actually race, their jockeys are children. And in Mongolia, the average age of a jockey is like four. Oh. I've seen three-year-olds race horses there. And <laughs> which I'm not advocating for the record, but that's their culture. <laughs> and so if you get a race horse that's used to being ridden by a kid, it's been ridden a lot. It's been conditioned and there's nothing like it. But then the very next horse you might draw might've been sat on four times in its life. And that is an entirely <laughs> right. different ride. Uh, when so you, yeah, and you, and you broke your hand during the race. Is that correct? I did. And I don't mind saying this too much because we're all friends, but <laughs> the time that I broke my hand, it was on day six and I was in the front. We were leading the pack. The year that I went, was the first year they really attracted a lot of very competitive people. So where they had a 40% finish rate before, our year had like a 65% finish rate. Oh, and wow. there was a pack of us that were just 100 miles ahead of everybody else. Wow. Uh, it, due to our a combination of horsemanship, luck, you know, everything. We were in the front and competitive nature. <laughs> and so it was myself and Sam Jones, who eventually won, Brent and a couple other people. And I got on this little horse that they only require them to have four rides before they participate in the race. 
Oh my God. Four. And I think I got one of those. (laughs) (laughs) I came off of him three times. The first time was doing something totally stupid, which was I I dropped my glove. I don't even know why I took my glove off, but I dropped it. And so I was like, oh, I'll go get my glove. So I went to get off the horse and he like reared and like dumped me on this like dirt track that we were on. And they come with these like 12 foot ropes attached to their halters or bridles. (laughs) And I just held on for dear life. And he kind of dragged me a bit and (laughs) I got my glove and I was like, well, I'm never doing that again. (laughs) <laughs> and I got back on. Everybody kind of waited for me that time. And then we're, we're cruising. Everybody's doing great. Horses feel great. You start to get a little lax, a little bit less on alert for things that mm-hmm, can happen. Mm-hmm. And I kept my GPS like in a pocket on my chest. And I literally pulled my GPS out to look at it. And that little bit of arm movement absolutely sent my horse into a fit. Just oh, no. bronking fit. Just and I was not prepared for it because I had let my guard down. I was on a loose rein. Well, you're always on a loose rein in Mongolia, but you know what I mean? And I, I popped off. And there we are, day six, very close to the end of the race. And Brent, Sam, Barbara, all those guys, they stopped and looked at me and they're like, Are you okay? <laughs> and I was like checking myself. I'm like, Yeah, I'm okay. Meanwhile, my horse had disappeared over the horizon to join oh. some other Oh, no. (laughs) You know, and so they were like, all right, well, good luck. And they kept riding, which I like to give them crap for it because we're friends. But it stung a little bit to be left there. And I I wasn't to wait for other horses to show up. No. So I traveled with a couple letters that I'd had translated into Mongolian. Mm -hmm. And I found a little family nearby and I showed them my letter and they basically sent kids on dirt bikes out to find my horse. And while they were waiting for those kids to come back, they were really fixated on getting me to eat food and oh. drink their tea and try to talk to me as best they could with charades and whatnot. It was really fun. Then, But that same horse, after I got on now the, I think, third time, we were <laughs> reunited and he had just run probably 15 kilometers with this wild herd of horses. He'd already done like 15 20 with before me and or before he lost me <laughs> and then he's kind of tired I'm kind of like on edge now and I get on him and we head out and things are going pretty good Mongolia is such a wild place you can't make this up it is the least densely populated country on earth there are times during that race there is nobody for 10 miles and on this little feral horse that I'm finally getting along with and we're trying to cruise we go around this crazy outcropping of rock and Turn the corner, middle of nowhere, Mongolia. There's a Mongolian day camp where (laughs) it looks like the city Mongolians come out to the country to go back to their roots or whatever. And (laughs) there's people playing tetherball. There's children like playing baseball. I could feel this horse just, you know, charge up. And I'm like, oh, God. And so he took off. And that I, I can handle taking off. And the kids are like running towards us. And I'm just like, no. You know, so... We're flying, and at some point in the process, that rope that I have, that in all this fuss, the knot at the end of that rope at one point got stuck under the horse's tail. Oh, my and God. then not only are we probably traveling at 30 miles an hour over incredibly rocky terrain, now we're bronking. He didn't slow down. He just started bucking. And oh God. God help me. I, I just held on to his mane with dear life, and I was like trying desperately to get this, this thing out. <laughs> and by the time it finally falls loose, like that horse is so tired. He'd run so much. And yeah. as soon as that rope came out, he just stopped. He was heaving, but I don't blame him. Oh. You know, he was scared. 
So I check my GPS. I'm like, we got two kilometers to go. We're so close. Let's just walk. Let's just walk. Yeah. Have a nice, peaceful walk to the next girl. And we're doing that. And we're going through this little valley that had like a river that had gone through it, but it wasn't full. So it was like a spider web of little creeks. And he lives out there. So he was just one after the other, going down, going up, going down, going up, got all these banks. And then for some reason at like bank number 18, he goes down. And I'm sure most of you know that feeling when your horse suddenly just crouches. Oh, no. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, don't do it. And then he just launched over this Oh. ridiculously tiny little piece of water he that he had just all crossed the times. <laughs> yeah. And the act of me coming out of my saddle and then coming back into oh. my saddle very roughly <laughs> sent him off into another bucking fit. Oh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, but he was so tired at this point and where we were, the ground was beautiful. It was just spongy green grass. You knew it was soft. So mm-hmm. I was like, this horse is tired. I'm just going to roll off and we'll regroup. So I did. I executed one of the most beautiful emergency dismounts I've ever had to do rolled beautifully (laughs) across the grass. I ended up on my back and about the time I looked up, I see the horse charging at me and (laughs) I have no time to move. So I just cover up my face with my hands and hope for the best. And he jumped over me, but his hoof hit my hand (gasps) as he did so. And the bone just snapped. Oh my goodness. And you're so close to the finish. I'm so close. And I sit up and I'm looking at my hand and I like touch it and it makes that crinkly sound that I now know is called crepitus. Got to learn that word that day. Yeah, so caught the horse because he was tired. He didn't go very far. Then I spent an hour trying to get the horse to follow me because he's feral. They don't don't follow you. They don't, unless they're a kid's horse that gets used all the time. You you can pull all you want. They're not coming. And then I would try to get behind it and like shoo it. And then it would just go crazy. And believe it or not, I got on the horse a fourth time. (laughs) Right, because what other choices did you have? I know. And I, I didn't. I feel like I had no other choice. (laughs) <laughs> I, I did make it to the station and, and everything was fine. But at this point in the race, there was 250 kilometers left to go, which is a lot. And I spent the whole night trying to debate what I'm going to do because there was also an emergency hold on the course when I got there for other reasons. So I had time to sit and contemplate. And I decided I couldn't stop there. If I'd broken my leg, if I'd broken my ribs, like enough yeah. that I couldn't breathe, those were injuries I could say, okay, I did my best. I can't ride this way. Instead, I broke my hand. And I'm like, well, I don't need both hands, really, to ride. <laughs> like, True horse um, girl. You know, and I, I would be proven wrong at a couple occasions, but I had fallen down to about 12th place with my broken hand the first day. And then I got faster and faster and faster as we went. Like, I started just asking for the fast horses because I could hold on. But if I got a horse that was slow because somebody wanted to take care of my hand, it was it was awful. So yeah, at the end of the day, I, I made it in fifth place and I had a complete spiral fracture in my hand that the medics had told me if I'd fallen off one more time, the bone was going to come to the skin. Yeah. And, but here I am. And I got a few <laughs> screws in my hand as a souvenir as well. So yeah, so that's the Mongol Derby for you, though. It's it's wild. It's not anything that you've ever experienced anywhere else. Maybe it also set you up for anything an off-the-track thoroughbred is going to do. You're just like, hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny <laughs> It's true, though, because these horses, too, they have no necks. These have no necks. So when they're squirrely, there's there's nothing there to either hold on to or catch you. And But we had some wild times. But I guess we have a whole episode just talking about the Mongol Derby. So. Oh, that's really exciting. Well, let's get down to business. What we really want to focus of this episode is obviously getting to know you, Bonnie, and ATR. But you have a current 
crisis going on, which is your farm is up for sale. Mm-hmm. And so let's break down what the current situation is at the farm in Elkton and what your plan is. Sure. So for a little bit of background, this farm was actually built for after the races to move into. So when I say that, we helped design this farm. It was made for us. It was a rental, but it was made for after the races. So of the several places that we have been, this farm has felt so much more like home. It has felt like a real permanent home for after the races. And we thought that that would be the case for a long time. And our landlord came to us literally on New Year's Eve and said, hey, I'm selling the farm. (laughs) And that was a bit rough to hear on New Year's Eve. Come to find out he he wasn't selling it super quickly, but he was going to start entertaining offers on the farm. And we don't really exactly have a timeline, which is kind of tricky. So it's just however long it takes somebody to make an offer that he'll accept is our timeline, which I know is very vague. So we have been trying to start a pretty quick and serious capital campaign because we want to buy the farm. We want to stay here. This place is home to after the races. It feels like home. It's been home. There is room for us to expand and do more. And so we are doing everything we can to secure this farm for after the races. And I will say, I found out the other day that our landlord is going to give us first right of refusal. So there is that. We're not just going to lose it if somebody wants to buy it, but we have to raise enough capital that we can get a mortgage that after the races can afford to pay. And I think that's where people get confused. Like, why do you need $600,000? You're not buying the farm outright. It's like, well, it's a $1.4 million farm. It's, and and maybe he'll end up taking a little less, but he's not going to take much less. And we have to raise this capital to put that down payment in place so that we can have a mortgage that we can afford while doing all the things that we want to do. Like I said, we want to build another barn. We want to have a 10 stall barn just for rehabilitation horses. Right now we have six stalls in our 20 stall barn that we allocate to rehab but those horses get to watch the healthy ones walk in and out every day mm-hmm. and all the activity that goes on. And many of them handle it fine, but it would be so much nicer to have one quiet barn, 10 stalls, more horses than we ever had in rehab at one time. And on top of that, maybe a couple stalls for quarantine or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. That would be a huge expansion for ATR. We could go from having 90 horses a year to 130 horses a year. And also... It's needed. The last year or two of our operations, we have been seeing more and more and more rehab cases come in. And I think part of that is that there was a a moment kind of after COVID where people were thinking, oh, we'll go buy horses off the track and flip them. And it worked for some people. It didn't work for everybody. But the trainers started giving these horses away for 500 bucks, 1000 bucks. Mm -hmm. And then we were getting all the rehab cases. So I'm not complaining, but it'd be nice to have more space for more rehab cases because we're not only seeing more of them, but after the races is known for doing an exceptional job at rehabilitation of these horses. So we're good at it. So it'd be nice to be able to do more of it. So another one of our goals that we would really like to see accomplished here is the start of an internship program at after the races. I was fortunate enough to go through a really life changing internship experience in Kentucky. And while I'm not going to pretend to be Judmont Farms, You know, there is so much we can offer to students here who want to get into the horse industry or want to become veterinarians or want to become farm managers, anything like that. And the biggest limitation we have for that is that we don't have housing for those students. We get requests all the time from all over the country for people that want to come intern with us. 
but we just don't have anywhere to put them. So if we bought the farm, would be hopefully an expansion of the current housing so that we could have up to two interns at a time mm-hmm. and work with some local universities. There's a lot of universities around here with great equine programs, with pre-vet programs. It'd be great to partner with them and help bring up the next generation of horsemen and women because a lot of people think they want to get in, but they don't know how. Yeah, They don't know how to get that foot in the door. And working for someone reputable, like I worked for Judmont Farms, opens so many doors for you. So yeah. especially if you're trying to get into vet school, I know when my friends were applying for vet school, because I was a pre-vet major, they had to show they had all this volunteer time at like a large animal clinic and a small animal clinic. And so people could get that here and kind of have that head start when they come time to apply for those things. I just, I have a passion for educating the next generation and we do as much as we can. We see a lot of 4-H groups come through here. We have local community colleges that come out here for demos, for talks, for project days. And I'm always, always super into it. The educational side of this industry, I think, could be a lot better. And there could be a lot more opportunities out there, I think, than there are. And we would like to help fix that a little bit. It kind of goes back to what you were saying in the beginning, which is transparency of the industry as a whole is something that's becoming so much more normalized now. And I think it's really nice to let people inside your operation, inside the inner workings of how the horses get to where they are in your program. And I think education is really one of the biggest proponents of ensuring that these horses end up in safe places. So when you guys got the farm, was it just a blank slate? Was there anything built there or how did that? When we were talking to the man who owns the farm, it was, it was totally a blank slate. It was just one empty property. And the property is 77 acres, but only about 30-ish of it are usable. The rest of it is, is covered in woods that also have a stream going through it. And the property is under rural conservation. So there's limits on what you can do around that stream. So this isn't a property somebody could buy to develop. It, it can never be developed. It can never be used that way. It can only be used for an agricultural purpose. Mm-hmm. And if we were to buy this farm, obviously we would continue that mission. It would stay a horse farm, be a big part of Cecil County agriculture. It's kind of a fixture here near Fairhill. And yeah. we would really hate to see it go. And if we don't raise the funds in time, or maybe we raise two thirds of it, what we need, but we just can't quite make it in time for our landlord to sell the farm to us. Our lease does come with a six month termination period. So it's not like we're going to be out the next day. We're protected. ATR is going to be fine. But, you know, contingency plan is take that money that we have raised and maybe invest it in a property of our own. Yeah. So, you know, either way, the funds that we raise are going to lead to a permanent home for ATR. We would love for it to be this farm so much. (laughs) Yeah. I think your proximity to Fairhill University's New Bolton Center and generally just a very horse-saturated part of the country, it's really special what you have there. Absolutely. And, you know, we wouldn't be opposed either at at all if someone did want to buy the property to help us preserve it, but then do basically a lease to purchase from them. Mm -hmm. That's something that has been thrown around a little bit. There are people out there that could do that, that would like doing that, would like to see you know, do some good for the horse industry. And we're open to that solution as well. Because if someone does that, the money that we've raised so far for this capital campaign, it's a pretty significant down payment for a lease to own. And then eventually this farm would be ours. And it's, and if nothing else, it would preserve it for, for many years. So those are kind of our options at this point. (laughs) So you guys put all the pastures in the barns or you helped create what's there now. 
We helped design it. The design. the man who the man who bought the farm paid very very little for this property, and yeah. then he spent about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars building the facilities. So, mm-hmm. and this was years ago, but we had five big pastures put in, a twenty stall barn, a little teeny tiny house, an arena, a round pen. All these things were put in. Some things aren't finished yet. The still, the the riding arena, for example, doesn't have any proper footing. It's just stone dust. So oh. <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge. I, yeah. I actually like when we get rain because when we get rain and drag it, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's great. But when we have a drought or it freezes, things like that, yeah. we lose riding time. But again, if we own the property, we would invest in footing sure. because it's our property. It, it doesn't make sense for us to spend $100,000 on footing if it's not ours. But otherwise, this place really is set up for after the races. We have our exercise machine right next to the barn. Everything is just perfectly placed. And it would be a shame to have to start over. And the exercise machine is something that you guys put in, right? We did. We did put that in. So that technically is ours. If we left, we could take it with us. It's a vital part of our rehab program. And it would be a pain to move. We could move it, but it would be a pain. (laughs) It's always a pain to move horses of any number, you know? (laughs) Oh, I'm just even talking about the machine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can move them, but yeah, they are a pain. It's funny you say that because when we moved to this farm, we called out for volunteers and I think we had six or seven people bring trailers and we had oh, like a caravan amazing. of all the horses going to the new farm <laughs> and it was actually really cool to see and it was it yeah. was fun. So moving the horses is weirdly like the easy part. Moving yeah. the entire business all is a whole other story. Yeah. yeah. So I know you mentioned some improvements that you'd like to make. You mentioned a rehab barn. Is there anything else that would be kind of on your wish list or what you would want to kind of invest in down the road if you were able to purchase the farm? Sorry. It's building the extra barn. It's eventually one day putting in an indoor arena or even covering our round pen. It can start as small as the round pen just to have some place to ride these horses year round because right now we lose probably three months a year to weather Yeah, as far as training. And that training can be vital for these horses being successful in their next career. So definitely some kind of indoor riding facility whether it's small or big and really i think i think it's all it's all those things it's starting the internship and continuing education for anybody who wants to be a part of it let's just say you guys managed to get the farm which would be amazing are these big ticket items things that people can donate towards will you have something where people can actually like donate specifically to that or even maybe just purchase something like that for you outright Are those things that you guys are open to? Sure. Absolutely. You know, our biggest priority right now is securing the property. Yeah. But once that is done, there will be work to be done. There will be things to either fundraise for or see if anybody wants to sponsor. You know, I know I'm not on quite the same level, but when I was at Monty Roberts Farm in California, it was every barn, every the Eurosizer, all the things in the farm, it would say proudly given by so-and-so or... This is the John Smith round pen or things like that. So we would absolutely be open to anything like that. That's That would be amazing. We're happy to put people's names on things. Anything you want. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, we're just here for the horses. So having somebody's name on our arena is great. It just shows that somebody put a lot of faith into what we do. And that's a great thing. Yeah. And you did talk about the mortgage already. And there's no real deadline right now. But the farm is actively for sale, correct? Yeah, the farm is actively for sale. It's actually being shown to people as well. We had someone come look at it today. And, you know, it it is stressful, you know, so it's not, there might not be a deadline, but there's still a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, 
comforting to know that our landlord will give us a chance to match whatever someone offers. Yeah. But at the same time, we have to be prepared to match it. So yeah, there's definitely a sense of urgency in, in this process. Yeah. And finding property that's suitable for your type of operation isn't impossible, but it is a challenge and it does come with a lot of compromises sometimes. So I think the sense of urgency is really real to keep a place that you have that's so well set up for after the races. Right. The location, I think, is what would be so hard. Yeah. One of the other big things about this farm is where we're located. And not just for the proximity to things that you would think of first. We're close to 95. We're close to Fairhill. We're close to these great places. Those are nice. But you know what else we're close to is my amazing staff and our amazing volunteers and our wonderful veterinarian who does so much for us and our farrier. So I've had people make comments. Well, why don't they just go buy a farm out in the country somewhere where it's a lot cheaper. Right. And we would, I would literally have to start completely over from scratch. That's a very good point. My employees after the races employees means so much to me right now that yeah. their location would determine where I want to be. And, sure. and again, all of our professional relationships as well. And our volunteers, if we have to move very far from where we are now, we risk losing them. Yeah. And that sucks. <laughs> yeah. It would just be such a huge dent to all of the good that ATR has done and the momentum of what you have going on right now. You know, it's going to really stall that whole process for you guys. And that would be such a shame. Well, let's talk about all of the ways that people can support your campaign to save the farm. Let's break down a couple of the different things that people can do. Well, you know, the first answer is always money. that's that's pretty much it (laughs) whether your gift is small or large it doesn't matter but we are looking for major gifts and everything is tax deductible we're here in time for tax season i believe don't quote me check with your cpa but i think there's still a window where you can donate before you file your taxes and get a write-off for last year not me but (laughs) you know it is tax deductible you're doing a good thing the major gifts are what we're after but the grassroots stuff still matters we have twenty five thousand followers on just our Facebook page. You know, if every one of them donated $5, we'd, we'd almost be there. And it's crazy to think of those numbers like that. I was looking at our statistics this morning after another meeting, and we've reached, according to our statistics, 600,000 people in the last month. Like, wow. it, it just, it boggles my mind that we have so many people that are, are seeing our content, that are following our content, that are yeah. excited about what we do. And if they just knew that they could have such a big impact by giving such a small amount. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, it all literally adds up. But if you don't have $5 to give, other things you could do, you could do like a mini fundraiser yourself. Social media has so many ways now. And if a lot of people did little $200 fundraisers, it still sounds like it would take forever, but the, it all adds up and it all contributes and we're appreciative of all of it. So <laughs> if you're interested in finding out more about our Save the Farm campaign or donating, if you just go to our website, afterraces.org, right on the main page, there's an obvious link to our campaign page. And you can see on there the many ways you can donate, the donation levels. If you want to have something named after you or not even you, maybe you have a past horse that you loved that meant the world to you. You could donate and honor that horse to name our arena after your horse, name a stall, anything. And I think that would actually be pretty neat to see a lot of little commemorations around the farm to past thoroughbreds past dogs past family members i know i probably said that in the wrong order for some people but (laughs) that's a great way to honor somebody or something that you loved and do good with that money so that's an option 
Like I said, you can start your own little grassroots campaign, go around to your family and say, hey, we can get five bucks, like anything, doesn't matter, we'll take it. But we really are looking for major gifts. And if somebody has a connection that they think would benefit from hearing our story, or that might feel led to support an organization like ours, help us make that connection. Then send an email to that person and me and say, hey, this is a great cause that we believe in. And this is why. And we think you should consider supporting them because it means more to that person coming from someone they already know. Of course. Than coming from me who they've maybe never heard of or never had a relationship with. So that kind of networking is also very beneficial. If all the money that's being donated right now towards our capital campaign, if you read the wording of all of our posts, our letters, it's to secure, it is to secure a permanent home for after the races. We want it to be this property. We are going to do everything we can for it to be this property. If it's not this property, that money that people have donated that we've raised to put towards a property is still going to be put towards another property. We'll just have to start looking at another place to purchase. That money is not going to go to waste. It's not going to go to pad anybody's salaries or anything nonsensical like that. It's literally money that's earmarked for a permanent home for after the races. So whether it's this farm, whether it's the next farm, that's what it's going to be for. And outside of the social media campaigns that are going on and the page on your website, are there any other big events that are going maybe like a big fundraiser of any kind? So I actually had a meeting this morning about that exact thing. We made a connection with somebody who is going to help us put together a tremendous fundraiser, like a gala for after the race. And a real big event. It's going to be in Baltimore. It's going to be something that could help us raise easily $100,000, maybe more. Mm -hmm. The person who's doing this has done this before. And we're really excited about it. I just can't really share details at the moment, but that's okay. Something to look forward to. Exactly. And if you want to find out about it and be one of the first people to find out about it, subscribe to our newsletter on our website, follow us on social media. It's going to be an absolute blast. And also ways you can help if you want to leading up to this event is if you can have any items or services or vacation houses and you want to donate an item to an auction for us, we're actually probably going to do a live auction, not a silent auction, just to get mm-hmm. people more excited, more into it. And we'll auction off most anything. Maybe you have a timeshare or a vacation house that you don't use most of the year and could offer up a week at your house on the lake or wherever it is. And we would auction that off and that would go to support ATR. So that's another way you can donate without actually donating money. You can donate items, you can donate services, any of that. And what are some ways that people can donate without actually donating an item or, or a monetary donation? The biggest thing is honestly just spreading the word, telling people personally how much after the races means to you. If you got a horse from us, if you volunteered here, if you've just been following our pretty pictures on social media for five years and it gives you some joy in your day, tell people about it. Tell people to check us out. Tell people, hey, this organization is my favorite organization for whatever reasons. And I think other people should know about them. Maybe get involved. That word of mouth networking can really go a long way. We've done a lot with that already in the last 20 days or so that we've been doing this. And to date, we're, we're a little over 150 grand already. You guys have really hustled to pull all of this together in such a short period. I didn't realize it was such a short period of time either. So three weeks and we've raised that much, but we're kind of hitting that point where a lot of the, the 
I call it grassroots, a lot of like our supporters who definitely support us, but can't give the big gifts. Yeah. We've kind of reached that point where I don't want to burn them out <laughs> anymore. Yeah. You know, so this is the time to network. This is the time to tell your friends. This is the time to, if you have a business that uh, you want to sponsor something like this is, this is a chance to do that. But like I said, we'll have a big event at some point, hopefully in the near future. And I will share details as soon as we have it. But until then, it's a lot about just getting the word out there. So, yeah, I, I thought something really interesting that you said to me when we were putting this episode together was sharing the emotion behind what after the races means and what thoroughbreds mean to people. I think even if they haven't necessarily had an association with your organization, I think thoroughbred people are thoroughbred people and everybody right. wants to see you guys succeed. Yeah. And this is a pro tip, I guess, for anybody that's trying to raise money. If you want to help an organization raise money, don't just hit share on our post. Yeah. With nothing else. People will just scroll right past that, you know, share our post, but say, why you're sharing the post right. and encourage others to do something about it. Not saying that those shares won't possibly bring money in without having a description. The more you sell it as something that's important to you, the more of a response you're going to get. If you want people to step in and help that you have to be active in that process. And that, that goes for any organization, any fundraiser, you have to show them why it matters to you. Yeah. To, get to make it matter to them. Yeah. Yeah. To make it matter to them. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add there, hopefully from talking to you, hear you and hearing your voice and more about your story, hopefully that also helps build some of that why and why people should donate and care and, and help you secure the future of your organization and, and this farm. It just sounds really wonderful. And I know it's wonderful, but now <laughs> hopefully more people do. Anyway, anything else that you want to add, Bonnie? I'm trying to think of things that make ATR unique and how yeah. we operate and, and what the things that we do. And I think a lot of it is our willingness to take in the rehab cases, yeah. our willingness to take in the behavioral cases. You know, yeah. our staff is equipped to handle these horses. We have a stallion in our barn right now. A lot of the aftercare organizations will not take a stallion. They will not take a yeah. colt because they don't have the staff that can handle it or they're worried about a variety of things. Maybe they don't have the housing for it. We do. And that horse will be gelded before he gets adopted. But for right now, he has an injury that confines him to a stall. So he can't be gelded because it won't heal right. Yeah. You know, they have to move. They have to get out and, and move around to have things heal properly from that surgery. So, you know, that's another thing. Like we can take those horses. We have the ability to, to, to work with some pretty difficult cases. And for, I, I say that as it's a good thing. I thought that I knew your organization fairly well. And mm -hmm. I think you really broke down in very clear detail kind of what makes the organization so special when you highlighted all of the different things that you guys do at the beginning of this episode. It was eye-opening to me and your passion for it really comes through. Well, and I think another thing to mention too, going back to the people behind after the races are our volunteers we don't expect you to have a lot of horse experience or any horse experience to start here. So it kind of goes back into the educational thing. But if someone reaches out and they have a heart for volunteering and they want to learn more about horses, we'll take them and we'll train them. I have several people who have started volunteering here upon their retirement from other careers. And they just had always wanted to be around horses. And they're like, maybe I can go help these people. But some people might think I don't have enough experience to do that or I don't have the background, they won't take me. That's definitely not the case with us. We are 
very happy to train. And like I said, that goes into my personal (laughs) desire to educate more people. But yeah, and these same volunteers that started off as beginners, it's amazing to watch their progress. And we've had children volunteer here. The minimum age is usually about 13. But I've had children start here that have nervous disorders or like twitching, anxious things. Mm -hmm. And we have watched their confidence build day after day after day after day to the point that I had a parent come to me one day and go, hey, have you seen this behavior in my child recently? And, you know, like this nervous behavior. And I look back and I'm like, you know what? I haven't seen that in a while. And this same kid and others have gone on to then pursue riding lessons and become really invested in horses. And it's really cool to watch. We're not a therapy center, but just volunteering here, being around the horses is therapy for a lot of people. And so we like to provide that opportunity kind of regardless of experience. And and we're going to keep you safe. We have a lot of safety things in place. Not going to ask more of you than we think you can handle. But yeah, that's that's how we get a lot of our really long-term volunteers is taking people on that don't have that much experience and they appreciate it. So, yeah. And it's really nice to, to pair people that really have a willingness to learn and are interested with people that really want to teach and educate. Those two things don't often go hand in hand. No, no, that's absolutely, I agree with what you're saying completely. And to go back to things that I would like to see happen. If, if the farm was actually acquired for us, if we acquire the farm, if we build another barn, if we have interns, we will free up so much more time to do things that maybe we don't have time to do right now. Me personally, my specialty is retraining these horses or at least getting them off on that good foot. And I don't always have time to ride every day because I have so much other things to do to keep after the race is running. And one of those things that I would love to do that's a dream project of mine is actually to start a veterans program here or not even even a veterans, maybe just a trauma program. It doesn't have to be veterans, but That has always been a dream of mine for the last at least 10 years. And it's something we could absolutely do here. When we were at Monty Roberts Farm, when I was interning there, they had first responders come for a weekend and they worked with thoroughbreds right off the track. Yeah. Like it's possible. And it's actually a great match, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's another thing that I would love to do long-term if we could secure the facility and get that chance to grow a bit. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like not only is this your passion project, but you're in this for the long haul. If the farm becomes yours and ATRs, then you're there and you're expanding this through the rest of your life. Exactly. And I think our board member, Bethany, put it really well in one of her posts. It's in that we've helped 900 horses so far with people's help to procure this farm. We'll help 900 more. And if this farm is secured, you know, it's a place for these horses for decades to come. Yeah. And that's not a small thing, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie, for joining us today. As a reminder to our listeners, Bonnie McRae and After the Races can be found online at www.aftertheraces.org, also on Facebook and Instagram. Anywhere I missed there, Bonnie, that you wanted to add in? You know, we're on LinkedIn, we're on GuideStar. You can look us up and learn all about our organization. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to reach out to us on email at ottbontap at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at ottb underscore on underscore tap. And join our Facebook group, OTTB Market. And we'll see you next time. Bye.